have your Bibles, or if you want to grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, uh, we are going to be in 1 Samuel this morning, although we won't read any specific sections of the text right now. We will be moving through it, uh, summarizing it, giving application. This is part of our series that we have been in uh, for a few weeks now, knowing the greatest story, Genesis through Revelation, going one book at a time from 10,000 feet. So every sermon, I'm sorry. Oh, I think they're gone. <laughs> they're reminding me that the kids are going to Church for Kids. So if there are any more kids who want to go down to Church for Kids. Oh, Declan, do you want to go down to Church for Kids? <laughs> I found one. I found one out there. Okay, he's staying. Because you want to hear my preaching, right? Oh, okay. Sure. So Genesis to Revelation from 10,000 feet, one book at a time. We're in 1 Samuel this morning. We'll be in 2 Samuel next Sunday, and then we'll take a break uh, to do our Summer Psalms series. So would you uh, bow your heads with me in prayer again and ask the Lord for preparation and help this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that uh, what we are about to do this morning is um, powerful. We are going to listen to you communicate to us your word for our lives. So, Lord, I pray that your word would not return void as you have promised, that it would accomplish what you have set out and purpose for it to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Go ahead and show of hands this morning. Raise your hand if you have ever been blessed at any point in your life by good leadership. If you've been blessed by good leadership. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4 says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Beautiful picture of using authority well. Now raise your hand if you've ever been blessed by bad leadership. Some of you kind of, maybe you get where I'm going with that. I had a friend one time encourage me that you should count it a blessing if there is a bad leader because there's no better teacher of what not to do when you lead. It's a great example for you not to follow. But Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Has anyone here ever groaned under bad leadership? Well, the books of Samuel are stories of contrast for us between good, godly, God-fearing leadership and the alternative, self-serving leadership. And 1 Samuel particularly is a tale of two kings. Um, a true story, but it's a tale of two kings. It has much to teach us both about the authority that we need most in our lives over us. It also tells us how we should steward whatever authority God has given to us. And 
No matter who is here this morning, young and old, whatever place you find yourself in life, there is a measure of authority that God has delegated to you. So how are we to steward that for his glory? Last week, we went through Ruth, and it was a very particular story during uh, dealing with a very particular set of circumstances with one family. But I said it was kind of a bridge story for us to get from the time of the judges, where it begins, to the time of the kings, as Obed is born to Ruth and Boaz, and Obed will be the grandfather of King David. Well, 1 Samuel is going to give us a little bit broader history. It's still kind of a bridge from the time of the judges to the kings, but a a broader history of the whole nation of Israel. How they transitioned, how we got that transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, and how that would shape the rest of the nation. Samuel, the book of Samuel, has three main characters, at least 1 Samuel. And these three main characters are Samuel, Big surprise there. Saul and David. So who is Samuel? Samuel is the final judge. uh, The final one who sits in that position as a judge of Israel. He's also meant to be seen as the model of godliness among all of the judges. He is the final judge and, and the one who kind of communicates to us, this is what a judge should be like. He is quick to listen. He is eager to obey God's word, and he is a leader with very strong convictions. All qualities of a good and faithful leader. And Samuel holds the trifecta of offices in the Old Testament. At the same time, he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a judge. So we see him. He's given authority to call national assemblies together. He's given authority to appoint and to make sacrifices. He's given even the authority to appoint kings for the first time. And it says in 1 Samuel 3.19, The Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now the next main character that we're introduced to is the first Israelite king, Saul. So if Samuel is marked by a quickness to listen, a readiness to do God's will, Seeking God's glory first, then Saul is actually marked by shutting his ears to God's word, a readiness to do whatever Saul wants to do, and a thirst for his own glory. Saul is an impressive-looking man. By the world's standards, Saul has all the right stuff that a king should have. The problem is that he is too impressed with himself to be impressed by God. Far too impressed with himself to be impressed by God. And then finally, we have David. David is the central, going to be the central character of the books of Samuel. David is Saul's successor. In contrast with Saul, David is the unlikely king. David is the, the, the humble king. He's not even a viable option in his dad's mind when Samuel is sent to the family of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be king, and yet he becomes Israel's greatest and most faithful king. And this becomes a recurring theme in Samuel from 1 Samuel sixteen seven: The Lord sees not as man sees. We need to understand that this morning. The Lord does not see the way that we see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
We see very clearly in the books of Samuel that God is no respecter of persons. Instead, what he does is he chooses his servants and he accomplishes much through the faith of his servants. The book of Samuel begins much like the book of Ruth. We are introduced to this woman by the name of Hannah, who is barren, and she cries out to the Lord for help. She cries out to the Lord for a son, and she vows, if the Lord will bless her with a son, she will dedicate that son to the Lord all of his life. And he does, and so she does. As with Samson, Samuel is set apart from birth to the Lord. Only unlike Samson, Samuel has a heart to honor God. I always love that story of Samuel's initial calling from the Lord. God calls out to him audibly, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel, staying with the priest Eli, just keeps running to Eli and saying, Did you call me? Did you call me? Until Eli finally figures out what's going on. And he says, Okay, I think, think God is calling you. So the next time he calls... Just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We could spend a whole sermon right there with that one thought. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I pray that we, as the people of God, would have that posture every morning when we wake up. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The heart for God is a listening heart. At first, Samuel is, seems to be tested by God. Will he obey the Lord? Will he carry out his word? Samuel's first message that he has to deliver is a hard one. Could you, could you imagine having to deliver a message like this to your boss? The first thing he has to do is tell his boss that God's judgment is going to come and destroy his own family, Eli's family. See, Eli's sons have been profaning the temple system. They've been stealing sacrificial offerings to get fat themselves, food for themselves. They've been engaged in sexually immoral acts with the temple servants. They've made a mockery out of the things of God. And Eli has been passive in his leadership. Eli has not restrained them. He has not stopped them. He has passively allowed the evil to continue. So it's through Samuel that the Lord pronounces his judgment, both on the family of Eli, but really the whole nation of Israel. And when Israel goes to battle with the Philistines, Eli's sons think, well, if we just bring the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence among us, if we bring this to battle, then God will be with us and he will save us from from our enemies. But God has rejected them. God is judging them, and so he allows them to be delivered into the hands of the Philistines. Not only do Eli's sons fall dead, but 30,000, it says, in Israel. And on top of that, if, it, if that weren't bad enough, the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence with Israel, is actually stolen by the Philistines and taken captive. And when the 90-year-old Eli hears the news... He's overcome, and he falls over backwards and dies. Eli's sons are dead. Eli is dead. Who will carry on the line of this great high priest? And the Ark of the Covenant is now in the hands of the Philistines. This is about as bad as it could have gotten for them. 
It seems that God's patience has come to an end. And if you've ever heard that name Ichabod, this is where the name Ichabod comes from, from this story. It means I-kavod, kavod is God's glory, not God's glory, without God's glory. God's glory has departed Israel. That's what Eli's daughter-in-law would name her next son after all these events had taken place. The glory of God had departed Israel. That's as bad as it could get, we think. Now the Philistines, they find out that the ark is not just some kind of magic good luck charm that you can take for yourself and as long as you have it, God will save you from your enemies. They learn that the all-powerful God is all-powerfully good to those who serve him, but he's also all-powerfully against whatever opposes him. So while the ark is in their camp, God sends a plague on the Philistines, afflicting and killing many. And some of you in children's Sunday school would have loved this story. The big idol in the temple, the god Dagon, falls flat on his face because God's judgment is also against the Philistines. The Philistines are so terrified that they send the ark back to the Israelites. The ark has come back. God is now present with us again, so the people are hopeful. And what does Samuel do? Being a faithful leader, Samuel leads them in a worship service of repentance. I spoke a couple weeks ago about how does revival typically begin in the Bible? It typically begins with God's people right here repenting, confessing their sins, turning their hearts to God. So Samuel leads them like this. God hears their cry for mercy, and he grants them salvation from the Philistines. There is a measure of peace for a time again in the land. But then, as the story so often goes, as time passes, Samuel grows old. His sons do not follow in his footsteps. They are not walking with the Lord, and the people begin to get very scared. The people begin to worry, if Samuel is not going to lead us anymore and his kids are off doing whatever they want, then what's going to become of Israel? And so they look around at the other nations and they say, you know what we need? We need a king. We, we need one of those guys who can really take it to our enemies. We need some centralized leadership that can rule over us. And this ends up being one of those watershed moments in the history of Israel. So they ask Samuel for a king. They ask him to appoint a king who can rule over them after he dies. And we say, well, what's wrong with that? They're just looking for some leadership, right? Well, the problem is that from the beginning, when God had called his people out of Egypt, he had set things up. He had set up a system so that he would always reign as their king. If they would keep his law, his instruction, if they would honor the priesthood, if they would listen to his prophets, there would be no need for a king. Their reward for heeding God's word would include the things they longed for in a king. They would have promised protection from their enemies. They would have food and shelter. They would have all those things that they thought they needed a king for. So Samuel, being the God-fearing man that he is, gets very upset over this request. 
because he knows God is supposed to be their king. And so he asks the Lord, what do I do? They're asking for a king. They want a king. This is how God answers in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. He says, they want a king? Obey the voice of all the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. We're all familiar with that that phrase, be careful what you wish for. I want to just tweak that slightly this morning to say, be careful what you wish for when your heart is far from God. Okay, remember that. If you haven't been in God's word for a long time and your heart is going after something and you begin to pray for it, God just might give you exactly what you're asking for. When your heart is not set on the Lord, what you long for most will often become to you your greatest source of pain and frustration. Sometimes God will give us the very things that we seek in order to show us the futility of those things and to bring us to a place of humility where he reveals how much we need him and not whatever those things are that we were once asking for. The kings in Israel on the whole are going to take Israel on a downward spiral far, far away from God. Just as God had warned them was, would happen to them in Deuteronomy. But this is exactly what they want, right? You might find that hard to relate to today. Why would anybody want so badly for a king to rule over them. We don't quite get that today, I think, because we live in an age when authority is most often met with some kind of suspicion or disdain. We want to be free from people telling us what to do, right? But consider God's answer. What is the heart of the problem of Israel? The problem was not simply that they wanted a king. The problem was that they rejected the king of kings. They rejected the one who was intended to be their king all along. Now today, I know there, there may still be some tendency, maybe here in America, to look to an earthly ruler, a, a president as some kind of savior, but I think we have a much bigger problem that we need to deal with. The bigger problem is not about wanting a king to rule over us from outside, but instead rejecting God as king over our lives. We want to be, as the famous poem says, the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. We love to be in control. We love to be on the throne where God belongs. Things were going really well when they heeded Samuel's guidance. And what was his guidance to them? Return your heart to the Lord. Just like Moses before him, before they entered the promised land, just like Joshua at the end of his life, the message was the same. Israel, return your heart to the Lord. Things begin to spin out of control, and things will begin to spin out of control in your life, however, whenever you reject God as king over you. So the book turns at this point to recount for us that sad sad story of King Saul. God grants their request. He directs Samuel to anoint a king for them. 
But this is not going to be another Samuel, not a leader like Samuel, not one who is going to turn his heart to God and by extension, turn their hearts to God. No, this is a king who very much looks the part. If you look in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, this is his description. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. We might say tall, dark, and handsome with a Colgate smile and a complexion of peaches and cream. Maybe someone who would put fear into the hearts of his enemies. Maybe a a bombastic populist who could turn Israel into a mighty military force. Yeah, that's what we need. But Samuel warns them. This is actually in 1 Samuel 8. No, 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 no. This is what a king is going to be like for you. He says in chapter 8, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. See, Saul is an answer to their prayers. Only he's not the answer that they thought they were going to get. Saul is an answer of God's judgment upon the people for rejecting him as king. So it begins. Things seem to start out well for Israel. Under Saul's leadership, they defeat initially some of their neighboring enemies, the Ammonites. Saul begins to grow more and more confident, and he sets out to defeat those troublesome Philistines once and for all. Those Philistines who always seem to be a thorn in Israel's side. And after one battle victory, led by, not by Saul, but led by his son, Jonathan, Saul lets it be known to all the people, wants them to be sure they understand that he is the one responsible for the swift victory. And increasingly, as we read, it becomes clear that Saul seems to be acting much more according to his own agenda, for his own self-exaltation to make a great name for Saul rather than a great name for Yahweh. It's interesting in this narrative, unlike those successful campaigns of Joshua, when it seems like God directed where to attack and Joshua is just kind of following behind with the Israelite as God went before them in battle and gave them victory time after time, Saul seems to be initiating everything on his own or at least wanting to take credit for all of the battles. 
rather than acknowledging later, like David will, that the battle belongs to the Lord, Saul's actions seem to always communicate the battle belongs to Saul. So I would ask you a question this morning. Does the battle belong to you? Whatever battle you have to fight, whatever trials you go through, whatever accomplishments, whatever things you accomplish in this life, is it because of you? Or is it because of God? Over and over in Scripture, we are instructed to wait upon the Lord. Blessed are those, it says, who wait upon the Lord. No one who waits upon the Lord will ever be put to shame. But Saul quite literally refuses to wait for the direction and the help of the Lord because he is much more interested in making a name for himself. And we see three ways that his leadership, his negative leadership bears this out. And just cover these briefly here this morning. Three instances or or three ways that he is a wicked leader, not a God-fearing leader. Number one, Saul ignores or sometimes twists, manipulates the commands of God in order to fit his own agenda. First, we see him making this unlawful sacrifice after he flees the Philistines and doesn't quite know what to do. Samuel said, wait for seven days, and at that appointed time, I will come and offer these sacrifices. But Saul decides, when Samuel doesn't show up when he thought he would, to go ahead and take care of it himself. Of course, when Samuel confronts him about that, he said, I was, I was just trying to do what the Lord had commanded. And Saul, Samuel says, stop. Stop. Shut up. Like, no, you have completely disobeyed the Lord's command. Stop making excuses. To obey is better than sacrifice. Don't think that if if you're living your life this way, but you do a bunch of churchy things that you can say to God, you can kind of trick him into thinking, but God, I'm, I'm on your side, right? No, to obey the Lord is far better than sacrifice. Another thing we see along these lines with Saul is a measure of false repentance. Because when he is confronted by Samuel, often what he will do is say, you're right, I have transgressed the law of the Lord. I repent. But then immediately after that, what does he tell Samuel? He says, no, 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 please, would you honor me before the elders and honor me before the people? I don't want them to know that I'm a bad guy. I want them to still think of me as having a good reputation. One of the final ways that we see Saul ignoring the commands of the Lord is at the very end of 1 Samuel when he decides that because the Lord has already rejected him, that he will try to kind of go around it, the back door, and he calls upon a medium, somebody who can communicate with the dead. Now, this is explicitly forbidden in God's law, but he's like, well, maybe if I can bring Samuel back from the dead, I can ask him for help in the battle. Now, what do you think Samuel does when he is called back from the dead? And this is a really cool story in the Old Testament. Samuel really is called back from the dead. What do you think Samuel says? Are you kidding me? You think the Lord is going to be with you now? You have explicitly violated his commandments. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Another thing we see with Saul is that he is a leader who seeks 
his own authority and his own glory, which belongs only to God. At one point, Saul makes this rash vow because he wants to be avenged for his, the way his enemies have treated him. And he says, if anybody eats, if anybody so much as tastes a little bit of food before my enemies are avenged. Now, now where does, who, who owns vengeance? Who does that belong to? The Lord, right? But if anybody even so much as eats before my enemies are avenged, they will die. Well, guess who doesn't hear about that decree? His own son, Jonathan. And so what does Saul think? Well, I guess Jonathan has to die. At another point, Saul becomes so upset because of one priest who helps David out when he is fleeing from Saul that he ends up ordering the killing of 85 priests of God. And Saul, all throughout, is continually hijacking credit that belongs only to God or credit that, humanly speaking, belongs to valiant heroes in order to exalt himself. The third thing, character quality of his leadership, is that Saul is completely unable to delight in others' gifts and successes. Jealousy consumes him. But let me just say, by way of application this morning, if you are somebody that has a hard time delighting in others' successes, this might be the reason. The reason might be because you think more highly of what others think about you than what God has to say about you. If you're delighting in what God thinks about you, you have no reason to ever be jealous of other people's successes. But Saul is deeply, deeply troubled by David's military successes, David's prowess, and the way that people praise David for his victories. And so he gets so upset that he becomes murderously jealous. He attempts to kill David multiple times. Now, you know, Saul was keenly aware of David's gifts. David was in his servant. David was an asset, was meant to be an asset to Saul. If Saul had embraced David's gifts and celebrated them and employed them for Israel's success, think what it would have been like for him. But simply because he could not handle seeing somebody else succeed where he couldn't, he ends up trying to kill God's greatest gift to him. He drove him away. He put David on the run. And this only ends up making Saul weaker and weaker and weaker. And the ending of the story of Saul is very tragic. His own recklessness and his thirst for power and fame finally catch up to him. And he ends up killing himself in battle. Why? Because he refuses to let the Philistines have the satisfaction of killing. Even in killing himself, he's still trying to exalt himself. It's utterly absurd. It's utterly tragic. It's a picture of what happens when someone tries to live their entire life for their own glory and misses out on the glory of God. But as I said, this is a tale of two kings. Israel's first king, Saul, is the epitome of pride, jealousy, self-reliance, manipulation, 
impatience, and deceit. Meanwhile, God is raising up a new king. God is raising up a different kind of king, a king who is said to be after God's own heart. David, as we said, is that great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz from the story we talked about last week. So even his birth is the fruit of fierce loyalty to God and a reminder of God's faithfulness to those who trust him. We find out God had picked out David long before Saul's reign had come to an end. And speaking of the contrast, the sharp contrast that the author is making in the book of Samuel, it's in chapter 16, verse 13. At David's anointing, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then the very next verse, verse 14, tells us that the spirit departed from Saul because of his failure to carry out God's commands. Initially, David is brought into the service of Saul. He's brought into the service of Saul to actually comfort Saul because the spirit of the Lord has left him and now a new spirit is tormenting Saul's soul. So David, being a skilled harp player, plays the harp for Saul to calm his anxieties. It says he actually becomes a delight to Saul for just a tiny little bit. 1621, Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And all of this sets the stage for that all-famous story of David and Goliath. The story which would propel David to fame in Israel, but would make him at the same time a thorn and a stench to proud Saul. And the rest of the narrative is this back and forth. Saul tries to kill David. David spares Saul's life. Saul tries to kill David. David spares Saul's life. Saul kills people that help David. David feels bad that Saul would kill people who helped him, so he takes people in and pledges his loyalty to them instead. And for the sake of time, I have to reduce this to a very brief summary this morning, but I just want to make that comparison, that contrast that the author is making between evil King Saul and God-fearing King David. The first thing is, unlike Saul, who disobeyed and manipulated God's commands, David had an unshakable devotion to God. An unshakable devotion to God. First characteristic of good, godly leadership, an unshakable devotion to God. When Goliath makes his threat to the Israelites, David says, who should defy the armies of the living God? His zeal is for God. He says, the Lord, not myself, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. David's zeal is not for his own fame. His zeal is for the fame of Yahweh. Do you have a zeal like that for the Lord today? Does it bother you when people curse God or when people neglect the things of God or when Christians profess to know God but deny godliness? Or they have a form of godliness but deny its power? I think that's what I was trying to say. Is your zeal for you, your fame, or is your zeal for the fame of Yahweh? While Saul did what seemed best in his own eyes, David was the Psalm 1 man. 
What do I mean by the Psalm 1 man? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. On it, he meditates day and night. And we have a whole book of evidence of David's sincere devotion to the Lord in the Psalms. And David and Goliath is really the centerpiece of this theme. It's, it's much less about the underdogs slaying giants and far more about letting the Lord fight your battles for you. David is not overcome by Goliath's threat. He's not deterred by his brothers questioning his motives. He's not held down by Saul's armor. And when he stares down Goliath, he does not back down because he understands it's not giant with sword and spear fighting against little boy with a few stones, but instead it's the God of the universe going up against the piddly schemes of Satan. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think I misspoke. I said the piddly schemes. Now, apart from having Christ in our lives, those will not seem piddly at all. Satan has a lot of power. It's just that in comparison to God's power, they are very piddly schemes. But David understood that the struggle was not against flesh and blood. Number two, David was far more concerned for God's glory as well as the welfare of others. Again, he says the battle belongs to the Lord. When he's in distress, where does David turn to for help? He turns to a priest to inquire of the Lord. David is fiercely loyal to even Saul when he wants to kill him, and Jonathan, Saul's own son, who could presumably become the king. That is not a threat to David. Remember why? Because David knows what's most important is what the Lord thinks about him, not what others think about him. And when others encourage David to kill Saul, he says not to lay a hand on God's anointed. David keeps his word. He's true to his word to not cut off Saul's offspring when Saul begs him of that. And finally, as I said, David delights in what the Lord says about him. So he has no reason to be jealous of others' successes. Even though he has been anointed as king, he is willing to accept his lot, willing to even live his life as a fugitive so long as the Lord is with him. You know that song, we're actually going to sing it in just a little bit. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know when David wrote that song? When he was in hiding in a cave with a bunch of other distressed people who were on the run from their enemies. And yet he's able to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who, who finds refuge in him. So the book of Samuel ends with David's ascension as a humble hero of Israel, as he defeats the Amalekites, followed by the final downfall of the proud and selfish and jealous Saul. You can kind of think of the book as an X. So Saul starts out here and ends up down here. David starts out here and ends up here. It's a 31-chapter illustration of this proverb. Before destruction, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18:12. Or the Jesus' word to the Pharisees: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now, this, those verses, those proverbs seem, seem to be often used like, like against other people. Oh, well, just wait. He's proud. His fall is coming. But let's, let's kind of be a little more introspective about what God is teaching us in the book of 1 Samuel. Let's not look at other people and say, oh, yeah, he's going to get what's coming. Why did Israel want a king? Ultimately, because they didn't want God to rule over them as king. What was Saul's biggest problem, really? It's because it's that he didn't want God to rule over him as king. It was almost one and the same. Both the Israelites and Saul, they both rejected having God on the throne of their lives. I've been saying this is a tale of two kings, but it's actually a tale of three kings. Meant to teach us the difference between rejecting God as king and embracing God as king. Where did David's success ultimately come from? Came from the fact that God was ruling his heart. What does it mean to let the king of kings rule your heart today? First of all, if you don't know him as king, if you don't know him as Lord of your life, will you be too proud to admit that you need a savior in the first place? Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, humble little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Why does he make a point of all this, of saying that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because when you are proud or when you have great wealth, it makes it really hard to see that you need a king ruling over you because you think you've got it all figured out yourself. And so I would ask us this morning, are we rejecting God's rule over our lives? Now, I, I know, I think I can speak honestly here to say I, all of us, to some extent, are probably still holding on to areas of our life where we are trying to exalt ourselves as king above God. If so, what areas of your life do you still need to surrender control? Is it the way you think of your career? Is it the way that you use your finances? I, I, I can't give to God's kingdom because I have too much of my own stuff that I've got to take care of. Is it a matter of your own self-image or your self-worth? Is it the anxieties of tomorrow? Is it a problem of anger? Maybe a problem of slothfulness in serving? These two kings help us see more clearly just how badly we need a perfect king to rule over us. And that perfect king is not David. David is merely a signpost. David is merely a shadow of a much greater reality. David's flaws are coming. Stay tuned next week. David's flaws are coming. But you know what? Jesus has no flaws. Jesus reigns perfectly over us if we let him. Jesus can take perfect control over our lives. So who is on the throne of your life? Is it the flawless King Jesus or is it King me? 
Let's get that figured out. Let's get that settled this morning. And if you have questions about what it means for Jesus to be king over your life, or if you're wondering, how do I surrender control of something that I want to hold on to so bad? If you want to know what that looks like or understand, come talk to me. Come talk to Chris. Come talk to Dewey. Talk to, talk to someone here in this church who can help you, point you to King Jesus.